And January 6th of the year before last, when the first Jaguars finally sauntered through the gate, I was here in California because of COVID, and I thought, well, I can die tomorrow. It's fine. They are back. Welcome to Rewilding the World with Ben Goldsmith, and I am incredibly happy and very fortunate to be sitting here with Christine Tompkins. Chris and her late husband, Doug, an old friend of mine and an old friend of my late Uncle Teddy's, have been pioneers of rewilding since the start, perhaps the greatest rewilders of them all. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Mm, I'm delighted to see you again and so happy to be here on this particular subject. Chris, um, when did you first meet Doug? I'd love to just begin our conversation with the story of that mm -hmm. beautiful romance. Oh, we met when I was 19 because he was a friend of Yvonne Chouinard and he was creating the North Face at that point and then in the late 80s, long after he'd started his spree company, and I had been uh, one of the six people starting Patagonia Company, and he wanted to do something else with his life, as did I, quite separately, and we ran into each other in southern Argentina in 1990, and that was it. And by 1993, I had retired from being CEO of Patagonia and began living with him in a roadless area down in southern Chile. That's how we got started. I mean, you almost couldn't script it, could you? The, the, <laughs> no. One of the people who built Patagonia <laughs> along with the founder of North Face and then Esprit, and you came together down in, in the wilds of South America. Why there? Because of the great wilderness? Why there and not the boreal in Canada or somewhere else? Well, I think two things happened to Doug that really impacted him, stuck with him. And that is, he was a ski racer, so he was training down in Chile and Argentina in the early 60s. And he had no money, so he'd hitchhike around both countries, having a look, and rather fell in love with him then. But then he and Yvonne Chouinard drove 10,000 miles from San Francisco all the way to the end of the Southern Cone, to climb a mountain they'd seen in a magazine called Fitzroy. And they spent six months with some friends of theirs. And then they went back to their normal working lives, but that territory really stuck with both of them. So when Doug sold his portion of a spree and got out, he was looking around for territories that he identified with, but also that were places where you could imagine working on large-scale conservation, and that's certainly one of them. Chris, I don't recognize the name Yvonne. Yvonne Chouinard is the founder of Patagonia Company. And before that, he was a, a blacksmith, made technical rock and ice climbing equipment, which is when I started working with him. I met him when I was very young, and when I graduated, finished my studies, I went back, really in the absence of knowing what I would do otherwise, And in 1992, I was 22 years old, he decided he wanted to start making clothes that we ski racers, climbers should be able to find. And that's how we started Patagonia. Fantastic. So you and Doug found yourselves down there. You found yourselves a couple. 
What was the state of the natural environment that you found down there? Because these are wild landscapes, but like so many landscapes that we think of as wild mm. and think of as natural, they had been substantially depleted in a number of different ways. For example, the highlands of Scotland are considered the great wilderness of Great Britain, but in fact, they're terribly depleted as compared with how they once were. What did you find down there? Well, you're exactly right, Ben. This is a big point because part of what has to happen to all of us, and it's happened to you and certainly to the two of us, is you have to learn to really see what it is you're looking at. And when we arrived to southern Chile, you could find these enormous temperate rainforests and the Patagonia grasslands that are quite famous. And you think, this is extraordinary. We've never seen so much open country and seemingly unharmed. But the fact is, once you begin to understand the landscape, the Patagonian grasslands have been decimated over the last century. And the threat and pressure on temperate rainforests all through Chile was quite high. So it's exactly as you say, we don't know what we're looking at half the time. And then once we settled in there, we realized we could acquire large tracts of land at costs that were extraordinarily low, if you compare it to the United States and especially to Europe. And that's how we got started, sort of little by little. And then we realized that this was something that we could do longer term and the scale and the scope of the territories we were acquiring would become national park scale properties, which we would donate to both countries. And you were typically buying properties from ranchers, cattle ranchers. Down in Patagonia, very specifically, they were all bought from ranchers who needed and wanted to get out. Up in the forests, a lot of those owners were people who had bought 300,000 acres in a vast territory in southern Chile. Maybe some of them never visited those properties. So that's why the forests were largely intact still. They were in private hands, and the private hands were often foreigners and uh, not really engaged in it. Up in Iberá, the 2 million acre Wetlands, yes, we had to buy large tracts of land and small from neighboring owners. And when did the piecing together of different parcels of land in the grasslands and in the forests and in the wetlands morph into the grand idea of creating a series of huge landscape scale restored areas? I think... It was within the first two years, maybe three years, when we began to see that the opportunity to acquire these lands existed, and they were never lands that we wanted to hold personally. And we grew up within the national park system of the United States, it's something we have to this day felt very, very strongly about. And so... We didn't start out with the idea of creating national parks, but it wasn't so long into it when we realized we felt like nobody should own that kind of land. And we had a real opportunity to make and to donate national parks, work with the government. So it was a couple, two or three years in, we began to see that ah, this is something permanent. This is something 
for all citizens. There's some degree of sensitivity in the countries of South America and Central America around gringos arriving and and directing as to how things should be or buying up land and doing undesirable things. What was the initial reaction by civil society and and also by Mm -hmm. politics to what you were doing in Chile and, and Argentina? The first five years in Chile were really tremendously challenging because as we acquired the first few hundred thousand acres of land, we began to be known as the couple who cut Chile in half. We were buying up all of these forests and not cutting them. And this was highly suspicious. So some people thought we were establishing a new Jewish state, although we were raised as Anglicans, that we were establishing a base for the Argentine military, a nuclear waste site for the United States, all these extraordinary and really sort of wacky accusations were actually quite serious. And today I understand why that happened. And in the moment, if you look back a generation ago, the death threats, military planes flying over our house and so on were quite real. But uh, our phones were tapped for 10 years. I think... Once the presidency shifted after the first four years and the following president coming in understood absolutely what we were trying to do and worked very closely with us. And in parallel to all this, you also have to be working in local communities and being good neighbors and all of the titles held by neighbors who were small who were rightly concerned that there is this Goliath beginning to amass these properties. So we actually helped all these people get their own titles to their land so that there would be no question about who owned what. And it was very difficult. That's clearly true. But, you know, I look back on it now, we should have expected it. Tell me, Chris, where were the aggregations of land centered? So which landscape specifically are we talking about that that you focused on? There's Ibarra, the wetlands of northern Argentina. We focused essentially in three ecosystem types. One, in southern Chile, the coastal temperate rainforests. For example, one of those parks is just over a million acres of what is today Pumaline Douglas Tompkins National Park. That was the first one. That's where all the trouble started. (laughs) And then we have also focused very deeply in various national parks in the Patagonia grasslands. And then finally, up all the way into northeastern Argentina, a few million acres of extensive wetlands. What was so clever about what, what you and Doug did was that in the process of handing this land over to public ownership for the creation of new national parks, you asked that these two governments additionally added land of their own in order dramatically to scale up the amount of rewilding you were able to do. How did you do that? How did you pull that off? And to what extent did that happen in the end? I would say if if someone used one word to describe our work, leverage would have to be the word because... 
of the 15 million plus acres that we've put into conservation, put into national parks, 13 national parks, so much of that is government land that was proposed by us to the government, and it was always this conversation. We would like to donate a million acres to the country of Chile in the form of a national park, put in all the infrastructure that you would see in a typical North American national park. And we ask that you would include all this contiguous land around the lands that we're discussing. And if I'm not mistaken, every national park we've created is tightly bound to this partnership with the, either the Chilean or Argentine government. So finally, we only purchased, say, 2.5 million acres of land, but the parks add up to 15.2, let's say. So in the last big donation that we made in Argentina in 2018, we donated, the net was a little over a million acres of, of lands that the foundation had acquired, and we asked the government for an additional 10.7 million acres, which was an entire archipelago in the southern coast of, of Chile. And that went through, and that's why it's considered to be the largest donation deal in history. It's just such an extraordinary story, Chris. I, I'm struggling to digest the magnitude of these numbers. So as these national parks came together in the three landscapes where you focus initially, how much did you have to do to restore ecosystems sufficient that you could start putting species back? For example, in the grasslands, what about fencing? Mm. In the temperate rainforests, what about mm. non-native plantation species? In the wetlands, what about man-made hydrological engineering? Like how much work did you have to do? It's really a central question because the easiest thing we've done is let the ink dry on the checks to acquire the territory. And as you know, that's when the work actually begins because in the temperate rainforests, we had to do almost no restoration work whatsoever. In the grassland territories, there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres of denuded grasslands, but really the only way to bring those back is to take the livestock off and let them come back on their own. In Iberá, we had a lot of restoration, mostly taking exotics out of the territory and fighting with entities that were illegally taking water out of the wetlands illegally helping the, the provincial government begin to recognize what, what was really happening and, and work together with them to see that that happened. And then we could begin to focus on what has become at least half our work, which is rewilding extirpated species. And that has changed our lives utterly since that began. Chris, tell us some of the, the some of your favorite stories in in respect of species being returned to the landscape. Well, I think, th of course, it's impossible not to talk about Ibera and the absence of their top species, the jaguar. That one, we 
through Doug, really. Doug, even in the early years of being in Ibera, understood that somehow we should be a part of bringing back this emblematic species. We had no idea how to do it, but eventually we would take that on. We have worked 10 years on jaguars. We have an enormous breeding center and all of the things we invested in, but the investment is really in the time and learning how should we do this. This has never been done before, bringing jaguars back, breeding jaguars to be reintroduced into the uh, ecosystem. And January 6th of the year before last, when the first jaguars finally sauntered through the gate, I was here in California because of COVID, and I thought, well, I can die tomorrow. It's fine. They are back. Truly, there are hundreds of moments when you're rewilding, and I know you understand this, when an individual is set free and they're back in charge of their own lives, this is phenomenal. And it's like having children. You never actually, they're like gum on your shoe. You never really stop, quote unquote, rewilding them because you have to make sure that the early species who have gone free, how are they doing? A lot of them are collared. The collars eventually fall off. Something like the giant anteater in Ibera, we have four fully functioning populations of them now. We know they're fine. They're repopulating very, very, very well. But still in all, we still track some of the original leaders, and it's like having hundreds of children. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same. I've, I I've know stood you on, do. <laughs> I've, I've stood on many riverbanks and watched beavers in Europe go free, and it's a personal ambition of mine to, to help see to it that beavers are returned to every river system across Europe and Asia from which they've been extirpated, and they survive, they thrive. Some of the reintroductions that have taken place have, have really worked incredibly well already even though this is recent work. So I fully sympathize with the way you feel. What about in the grasslands? What are the native grazing animals of the Patagonian grasslands, and where were they? Principally, they are the Wanacos, which is one of the four camelids in South America. It's really an emblematic grazer of Patagonia, and it's really the primary grazer. Nyandu, an ostrich-like looking animal, they pluck and pick, but the real grazers are the Wanako. And I would say in the Patagonia National Park Project, which is said to be the largest grassland restoration project in the world, and while I question that title, it's big. And really, to confront the damage that's been done in those grasslands, we just took down 500 miles of fence line allowed the Wanakos to get back down into the bottomlands, worked to restore riparian areas because cattle and sheep have a different way of crossing the landscape. And in the most arid parts of the grasslands, it's really sometimes you wonder if it will ever come back. But where there is any source of water, any source of precipitation from the from the Pacific Ocean, they're coming back in, in ways that we couldn't have imagined. So it requires patience and crossing your fingers a lot and, 
and mothering them along. It's just like rewilding species. You, you are helping them find themselves again and then just try to protect them as long as you can going forward. Yeah, these stories of rewilding landscapes and species are the most invigorating stories in the world today. And they're the stories that we need to be in the minds and the hearts of, of many, many more people and the, so that this work can be expanded all over the world. One of the things that inspires me most about you, Chris, is the way you went on bigger and bigger, even after losing Doug. Mm. And I, I'd love to talk a little bit about where it's gone because you've split your work into two new organizations, Rewilding mm. Chile and Rewilding Argentina. Both of those organizations I've met and they're doing extraordinary work. So it's almost as if this massive series of, of projects that you undertook together were just the beginning of something even bigger. Well, I hope that's exactly the case. <laughs> that was the idea. I mean, you knew Doug well. When he died, very unexpectedly, um, I thought two things. One, this is the worst thing that could happen to me. So it, it made me fearless. I have no fear about anything because what I would fear most had happened. And through that fearlessness, I just decided, A, now there's only one of us left. So I want to work as fast as possible and get the two teams with whom we've worked 20 years plus to be independent and absolutely capable from a funding standpoint, from every way to keep going faster, bigger projects, whether something happens to me or not. So right after Doug died, I started the um, independence effort, which was not without its uh, emotional and and um, strategic challenges, but I feel like we're in a race. I'm 72 years old, and I want to push up against those things we know that are killing species around the world, in, in our case, the Southern Cone, and um, protect the jewels of a, of a planet. And that's what I'm going to do. And I'm an activist, so I'm usually in the doghouse for one thing or another. And I know enough now how to move these things faster. I think that our timing politically has become ever more sharper, how to work with governments. I think it's very freeing when you have nothing to lose. And so nothing looks impossible to you. And even if it was deemed impossible, as you know from knowing Doug, that's when it gets interesting. <laughs> that's what you take on. <laughs> and, I, and I love it. I'm leaving in a couple weeks to go to Chile to meet with the president of the country, with Carolina Morgado. Uh, we have some extraordinary, very audacious projects in both countries and I know if something happens to me, they're going to go no matter what. Tell me about those projects. Wh which projects are you most excited about in each of Chile and Argentina? Well, any place where we're rewilding something, I'm very, very addicted and committed to rewilding extirpated species. I guess that's obvious. 
There is a project in Chile we've been working on actually since we figured out what the idea would be before we made the donations in 2018. And this is down in the Straits of Magellan, Cape Forward. Uh, these are big projects and very worthy. We have felt for a long time that we have a debt with the sea because we have a lot of national parks created along coastlines, the Atlantic and the Pacific. And we haven't been as aggressive in the marine conservation area as we should have been, in my opinion. So we're going back and working on that full bore that most of everything we work on, we will attempt to include terrestrial and marine territories in the future. But marine poses a whole different set of challenges because technically no one owns it. You can buy a cattle ranch and add it to your national park. How can a private organization go about rewilding, protecting and rewilding a marine archipelago? Working with the national government and the fisheries uh, industry and so on. No, it's a whole new kettle of fish, as they say, for us. But we made two very large no-take zones in the southern Atlantic, gosh, about four or five years ago, 30 million acres. Not that you measure the sea in acres, but to have an idea. And then the other, another big project is beyond the ongoing projects, Patagonia Azul, which is a long line of the Patagonian Atlantic coastline, and that is uh, marine protection and terrestrial and rewilding, and actually even rewilding parts of the sea in terms of algae and um, kelp and so on. So we're getting very much into new territory. If I'm to visit something amazing that you've done in Patagonia, in Argentina or Chile, where should I visit? I mean, I, in, a, in a limited trip, where, where, where should we go? I think if you want to see the possibilities for creating national parks with extraordinary and varied landscape, uh, in Chile, of course, Patagonia National Park is emblematic in terms of restoration, beauty, public access, and so on. And, you know, our first child, Pumaline, is in terms of being exquisite and large. If you're keen, especially on the technical side of rewilding extirpated species, uh, Ibera in northeastern Argentina. So each one of them has characteristics that people want to know an awful lot about, but there's just certain kinds of work that is highlighted in some of them more so than the others. Chris, you spent a lot of the last two or three years in the United States, your home country. Are you going to pop up in the rewilding movement in the U.S.? Yes. I've been in the States two years after being gone 28 years. And I've been looking around, as you know, at rewilding possibilities here in North America. And I'd like to say that there's so much work to be done here in the United States and I really feel like those of you in Europe are much farther along as 
teams may be here in North America, and I would congratulate what's happening in Europe. It's just phenomenal in one of the most crowded <laughs> continents. <laughs> you have really pushed the margins, and I congratulate you for that. Yeah, it's definitely exciting what's happening here in Europe. There are, there are 22,000 wolves across Europe in every single continental European yeah. country. Unbelievable. There are similar number of bears. Beavers have made a comeback almost everywhere. Southeast Europe is kind of the last frontier for beavers, yeah. and we're working on that, a number of us. Yes. Chris, you are magnificent. You're my hero. I'm so <laughs> grateful to you for taking the time to speak to me now. I'm in awe of everything you've done, and I'll do whatever I can to help the teams at Rewilding Chile, Rewilding Argentina. Thank you, Ben. Chris and Doug Tompkins will surely go down as the greatest rewilding legends ever. Chris and Doug have put together 10 million hectares of land restored and protected across Patagonia, and that area continues to grow. What a legacy and how lucky I am to have spent this time chatting with Chris. And now I can't wait to go off and watch the movie Wildlife that's been made about their work. If you've enjoyed this, we'd be really grateful if you'd share the podcast with your friends, subscribe on whatever platform you use, perhaps even leave us a five-star rating. It makes a huge difference. Next time on Rewilding the World, I'm going to be talking to Dutch engineer Thies van der Hoven. Thies has specialized in dredging, the technology that allows you to suck sand from the bottom of the sea to create artificial islands. In fact, Thies worked on the construction of the palm in Dubai. Thies has had the extraordinary idea of using dredging as a way of restoring the Great Lagoon and its surrounding landscapes in Sinai. This is a place that once teemed with life, a forest that stretched up into the hills and a Great Lagoon stretching as far as the eye can see, one of the world's most important migratory bird stopovers and fishing grounds for people. Of course, now we know Sinai is a desert, um, not much left. Dredging could be the answer. This is the kind of bold idea we're going to need if we are to rewild the world. And it's really exciting. I do hope you'll join me in my conversation with Thies.